When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. No president should be able to sustain boots on the ground without congressional approval and without a clear explanation of what the mission is and what the end game is. This isn't really about the economic policy. This is about the coronavirus. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. We must use every tool possible to defeat this assault on women's reproductive rights. This is a steady growth that we're seeing here in our economy, you know, over the last three months. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. It's election day in California and in the city of Boston as we meet on the eve of another deadline on Capitol Hill over reconciliation. So we've got a lot to dig into. Welcome as we start this hour with Congressman Ami Barra, Democrat from California, who's also working through the House Foreign Affairs Committee as we speak to help resettle Afghans following the U.S. withdrawal. Our panel today, Bloomberg politics contributor, Democratic analyst Jeannie Shanzano and Republican strategist Jennifer Nassar is with us today as well, founder of the Pocketbook Project. Later, we will go to ground in Boston, where voters are choosing finalists for mayor in what will be an historic election no matter how it ends. We'll be joined by the dean of Boston political journalist John Keller. It's happening again in California, as you've been hearing on Bloomberg Radio, a recall election This time, the incumbent, Governor Gavin Newsom, looks to be in pretty good shape if the polls at least tell us correctly. As we read the headline on the terminal, Californians decide Newsom's fate in historic recall election. Voters are being asked two questions, whether to keep the first term Democrat if he's removed, who should replace him from a field of more than 40 candidates. What a story. And that's where we start with Congressman Ami Barra, Democrat from California, who serves on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and we're going to get into some of his work in that department as well. Congressman, welcome. It's looking well for Gavin Newsom. Is that true? You know, Joe, thanks for having me on. It does look better than it did maybe three, four weeks ago. I think, um, you know, Governor Newsom and his campaign woke Democrats up to the possibility of a governor um, elder, which I think scared a lot of people. So, (laughs) you know, folks are turning in their ballots and If the polls are correct, I think the governor will um, avoid this recall pretty easily. Was it a good thing for the president to go out or or did it say something about the race uh, or or about Joe Biden? Or when you have the president of the United States cross the country to help an incumbent who seems to be in pretty good shape? You know, I think it it also um, allowed the president to come out and see some of the devastation of the wildfires up here around my district. And, you know, we're glad that, that he came out and firsthand had a chance to meet with some of the, the firefighters as well as you know, get up in a helicopter and tour some of the, the damage of the, the Calder fire. Um, and then while he was out here, you know, 
never hurts to have the president of the United States come out and just make sure folks know that there's an election taking place or recall. The wildfires uh, bring us to the matter of reconciliation because there's been so much talk about spending uh, to combat climate change in this three and a half trillion dollar reconciliation bill that I believe is coming together at least in another big step tomorrow. That was the deadline for committees to finish their work, uh, I believe, in the House and the Senate. I don't know if that moved under our our feet, uh, Congressman, but that's another big moment here. Do you see uh, this moving in the direction that you want it to? in a way that would prevent this this conversation every year about wildfires in California? Yeah, I certainly hope that there are provisions in whatever the final bill looks like that address better management of our forests, that address climate change, you know, longer term, better management of water, because these droughts are becoming more the norm than the, um, than the exception. And uh, obviously, we're still not at the peak of wildfire season Yet, so, you know, there may be more to come, but this is, you know, damaging not just to us, but a lot of the West Coast and Western states. So hopefully in the final bill that we vote on, there'll be um, a lot to help us manage this condition. It sounds like there's a lot that has yet to be uh, figured out here and a lot yet to be written. Uh, You've certainly seen uh, Chairman Richard Neal putting together a package that goes at core issues in the tax code. And uh, we spoke a little bit earlier about that. with uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer uh, speaking today on Capitol Hill, saying that things are moving forward. What is this deadline tomorrow going to bring out in terms of details? Yeah, I know all the committees have been um, working um, diligently the the last um, week or so to mark up the the various components that they have jurisdiction over. Obviously, the Ways and Means and Energy and Commerce um, components are the, the big ones. They're racing to this deadline. Whether you know, we see the final details tomorrow or shortly thereafter, I do think you'll see bills marked up to the $3.5 trillion range. Mm-hmm. Obviously, our colleagues um, you know, in the Senate, Senator Manchin, who I know well, has you know, said that might be too big a, a price tag. I think you're going to find the negotiation really starting, and hopefully some of that's taking place as we speak, and you know, we'll find some middle ground there. We spoke with uh, Brian Deese earlier today. He was just on uh, Bloomberg Television uh, talking about the, the crafting of the bill and specifically uh, the tax package, the way that Democrats would get to that three to three and a half trillion dollar mark. Here's what he said. You've seen Chairman Neal and the Ways and Means Committee, which is representative of a pretty broad cross-section of the Democratic caucus, putting together a package that it's not everything that the president uh, called for, but it goes at the core issues we face in our tax code bringing some fairness, having an international tax reform to actually bring more coherence, more competitiveness to our tax system, and cutting taxes for 50 million Americans, 4 million small businesses. So we're seeing real progress on that front. Of course, Congressman, you'd be raising taxes on corporations and the wealthy, but are you raising them enough? The numbers that we saw come out of the Ways and Means Committee, 26.5% corporate, 25 capital gains were below those asked for by the president himself. Yeah, I know the president asked for 28. Um, you know, I, I certainly feel confident that the floor will be at 25. If we can get 26 and a half, that does give us a little bit more revenue to, to, to play with. But, you know, I think 25 is definitely gettable. Yeah, I, I don't think there'll be a ton of fight on, you know, raising the, the, the upper rates to 39.6. Uh, and then, I do think there'll be some battles around, you know, capital gains, carried interest and, and, and the, the like there. But, 
you know, we would like to see this paid for uh, to the extent possible. So I do think you know, that's where, you know, you're going to have some tough negotiations take place. If that means a number lower than three and a half trillion dollars, would you still accept it? Um, yeah, I, I think it depends on what the actual content of the bill is. You know, if it helps the vast majority of middle class, um, lower income Americans, if it you know addresses some of the, the equity gaps, if it addresses the cost of health care and pharmaceuticals, um, maybe not to the extent that, that some in the party would want, but does give us a significant down payment on helping the next generation, then I do think um, it's a bill that you might find most Democrats supporting. I want to ask you, uh, Congressman, about your work through the House Foreign Affairs Committee and work on your own uh, to help resettle Afghans. And I understand uh, that you're in the process of doing that as we speak in the suburbs of Sacramento uh, and probably elsewhere. But we've been hearing from the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, speak about ongoing evacuations in a series of hearings in the House and Senate today, yesterday. Is the United States doing enough to try to get people out, even though the U.S. military is not there on the ground? You know, and Sacramento County has the largest population of Afghan refugees in, in the United States. And, you know, my office by itself has submitted the names of over 10,000 individuals, American citizens, visa holders, um, some of the, the translators and others that supported our troops and other Afghans at risk. Um, many of who are still in, in country. Look, I, I wish um, the withdrawal would have been handled slightly differently. I don't think anyone anticipated as quick a collapse of Kabul and the Afghan government as, as occurred. Um, but we are where we are. You know, my question to Secretary Blinken yesterday was, while nobody can guarantee that everyone who wants to get out will get out, mm. can he guarantee that we will do everything within our power to get all American citizens, visa holders, um, and other at-risk Afghans out. And he gave me an affirmative yes. So, you know, it's my expectation that we will continue to use whatever resources we have diplomatically, you know, through back channels, you know, I, I don't, you know, whether it's special operations and others, um, I'm doing everything I can to get, you know, vulnerable folks from my district who are still in country out, um, and then when they get here, you know, we're going to have to, you know, welcome them and make sure we appropriate the, the resources to help them put their lives back together and resettle and integrate to American society. How many people are left in Afghanistan right now who are reaching you for help? You know, I, I don't have an exact number because we also don't have a good accounting of the folks that we've gotten out of, of country. But I can tell you that my staff continues to, to get direct phone calls from Afghanistan. And what we're doing is we're making sure we're getting accurate information and contact details to the State Department. And that's the best thing any congressional office can do right now. Is, so when that window does open up, and it could be a brief window where you can get folks to an airport or across the border, that there's accurate information when folks in country are ready to move. We're talking with Congressman Ami Berra, Democrat from California, who serves on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. These must be desperate phone calls you're getting in your yeah, office. Yeah, they're, they're, they're very challenging for you know, you know, my staff and, and others that are talking to these folks. And while we don't have concrete guidance, again, we're sharing whatever information we can. And again, making sure that you know, State Department appropriate authorities have the information that they need. Are these Americans and Afghans you're hearing from? 
Yeah, so there's some American citizens, there's obviously some visa holders, and there's some family members and, and individuals that have ties to, to folks that are already living in my district. So you know, there, there's a desperation. And again, you know, we'll go back and we'll do oversight and, you know, ask the administration and others that were giving us information that turned out to be inaccurate. And, you know, was that just bad assessment, bad data, or were there things that they weren't telling us? And we're going to want to know that. But right now, the focus is there's still folks at risk and let's get them out. We'd really like to stay in touch with you on that, Congressman. I appreciate your being with us today. Congressman Ami Bear is a Democrat from California, obviously on the House Foreign Affairs Committee and busy in the resettling process. Face it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals. The Hartford accepts the challenge. The Hartford understands that protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can help provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to easily manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford faces any challenge to deliver innovative, customizable solutions that your industry and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for being with us on the Tuesday edition of Sound On as we keep an eye here on the West Coast this hour because it's another recall election in California. We may have defeated Donald Trump, but we have not defeated Trumpism. Trumpism is still on the ballot in California. No one, whether it's Obama, whether it's uh, Kamala Harris, whether it's Nancy Pelosi, whether it's Bernie Sanders, no one has uttered the following words. Governor Gavin Newsom has done a good job for the people of California. You won't hear that because he hasn't. Sounds from the trail, if we can call it that still. Gavin Newsom, Larry Elder there as I read. On the terminal, recent polls indicate Newsom has the support to survive. That is the conventional wisdom today going into this, but a loss or close race In a state like this one, it is California we're talking about. Democrats outnumber Republicans registered by nearly two to one could signal trouble. As Christopher Palmieri writes, for the party nationally in the congressional midterms and the looming not very nearby presidential election. Interesting, though, that some are considering this kind of a test drive uh, here. And we're joined by the panel here, Bloomberg Politics contributor and Democratic analyst Jeannie Shanzano and Republican strategist Jennifer Nasser is with us for the hour as well, founder of the Pocketbook Project. Welcome to both of you. What's your thought, Jeannie, as we uh, go into uh, the real hours that count here tonight? 
Happy Election Day, Joe. I love it. You Um, you know, I think it would be stunning and the polls would have to be, you know, entirely wrong, which we have seen in the past. But it's unlikely with the two to one advantage Democrats have that Gavin Newsom doesn't come out ahead in this thing. That said, as you mentioned, what we're going to be watching is, you know, not just turnout, but energy, which seems to be good. And this is sort of a, a dry run for Democrats on the midterm because they are going to be testing these message and the nationalization of this race has helped Gavin Newsom. So I think that's something that Democrats are going to keep pushing. This is things like the Texas abortion bill. That's not going to impact California necessarily, but it's something that you hear an awful lot about. So they're going to try to nationalize. But, you know, as I keep saying, it is a sign of energy in the Republican Party in California that Democrats have to watch. They don't have the numbers yet. But there are warning signs, everything from homelessness to the economy in California Mm -hmm. that Democrats have to be very careful about. Well, to that end, Jennifer, is this a dry run in a way for Republicans as well? At least they get to sit back and sort of check the playbook that Democrats will be using? Yeah, I mean, you know, I love Jeannie's analysis and I I think that she's exactly on point. Um, Right. Shocking. A Republican and Democrat actually agree on something. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Happens more often than you think on this program. A lot more often, and especially, you know, <laughs> I think I think we need a lot more of that. Um, I do think it's a dry run because regardless of where Larry Elder comes out, he's been making news and he has, has been rocking the boat and, you know, has had Newsom on his feet. Enough so that Elizabeth Warren was out, you know, something for Newsom. So I think that that's, you know, a really important factor to look at. I think it'll be great to see the poll numbers, what actually happens. But it has um, really ignited the Republican Party in California because, you know, they they weren't everyone isn't for Larry Elder. Um, However, it gets them out campaigning in a non-traditional campaign year and it gets them motivated and it gets the message tested. And just like, you know, Jeannie said about the Texas abortion law, I think more importantly, what we see is how about consumer prices that have gone up by three percent since last year? Or how about what's going on in Afghanistan and the, um, you know, and the hearings today? How about the COVID crisis? So I think that there is so much out there that we can have conversations about. And overall, when we have elections next year, so many governors, so many legislatures are up for re-election. I think, and, you know, and then members of Congress, I think that is really where the, the pedal is going to hit the metal yeah. for uh, both parties. Hence the playbook. So just quickly, Jennifer, does it mean more to you as a Republican to have Elizabeth Warren come out to California to stump for Gavin Newsom than Joe Biden? Um. Well, I live in Massachusetts, <laughs> huh. so, um, you know, it means something to me because she's not doing the work for Massachusetts, but we knew she wasn't going to do, so it's more important Well, I just mean in terms there. of progressive credentials. Yeah, I, definitely. I think, that, I think that that's showing where the Democratic Party is right now, right? Mm. The Democratic Party can't find its way back to the JFK days because it's so far over to the left, and it would be nice to show voters that really we can all agree to disagree, have different policy perspectives, but want to sit at the same table. And I think when you have someone like Elizabeth Warren, who's such a polarizing figure going out to California, that really sends a message to not just Republicans, but moderates. What does this conversation uh, say to you, Jeannie, as the Democrat 
more than familiar with this whole cast. That's sort of the broad swath of the Democratic Party there uh, from progressive to moderate going to California to make the case. What does that say about Gavin Newsom? Which which part of the party is he? You, you know, I, I think Gavin Newsom is tends to be more a bit more on the moderate side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that Democrats, regardless, moderate, progressive and everywhere in between conservative, they feel it, it is important, obviously, that he not become the second governor in California's history to be recalled. If nothing else, the implications nationally on something like an open Senate seat or something like that would be traumatic for Democrats. So I think regardless of, of whether they agree with everything he does or not they want to keep him there but you know i would say another element of this that we're seeing is on both sides we're seeing for instance the republicans talking about the election being stolen before it's even come out because they are concerned they've lost this thing that's something we're going to continue to see as we go into the midterm that that message is going to be out there the polls close in boston in less than three hours as voters choose two finalists for mayor one of whom We'll fill the seat that Marty Walsh left when he became Labor Secretary. And we're joined now by the Dean of Boston political journalist John Keller from CBS in Boston. Welcome, John, to Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for having me, Joe. So put this in perspective for us. No matter who wins, the result will be historic. Boston's never had a mayor of color, never had a female mayor. Four of the five candidates are are female. They all identify as people of color. One is Asian American, the other is of Moroccan descent, and the other three are black. So yeah, it'll be something new, although I would point out that the rise of of black and Latino political power in Boston has been a story that goes back nearly a decade. Uh, Take note of the fact that Four of the candidates, uh, the four women, are all members of the Boston City Council. Yes. Uh, And so, uh, and uh, and one of them, Michelle Wu, the frontrunner, according to the polls, is someone who's topped the ticket citywide uh, the last two election cycles. So, Mm -hmm. in a sense, it's not new, but it certainly would be a new evolutionary step. Well, with all that said, you've got Michelle Wu, the city councilor, the darling of... uh of young progressives even before this race, right? The free tea, rent control, a local Green New Deal. So let's assume that Michelle Wu, Councillor Wu, is in the top spot. Then this really becomes a race for second, a fight for second place, John Keller. What about the power of incumbency? Uh, Based on what you just said, Kim Janey, the first woman, the first person of color to lead the city in the wake, in this case of Marty Walsh going to Washington to be Labor Secretary, is not automatically a front-runner? How come? Everyone in the pundit class here in Boston, including yours truly, figured that Janie's stint as acting mayor would give her just a huge advantage, visibility, ability to be on the news every night, right. uh, the opportunity to do a lot of crowd-pleasing things. Mm-hmm. It hasn't worked out that way. Janie's months in office have been marked by a string of controversies uh, most not of her own making, but certainly things that erupted on her watch. A huge uproar over her firing of the police commissioner who had been appointed by Walsh on his way out the door. Uh, and that's still a matter of, of legal battle. 
a controversy over how admissions would be handled to the city's premier examination school, the Boston Latin School, the oldest public high school in America, a place long seen as a uh, a refuge from otherwise mediocre Boston public schools uh, by the city's middle class. Uh, and uh, there have been efforts to make it uh, less of a meritocracy there in order to make it a more diverse student body. That's been highly controversial. And then, of course, there's been uh, the pandemic, uh, which has forced Acting Mayor Janey to make a number of controversial decisions and uh, forced uh, really an unforced error on her own part when she balked at the idea of vaccine passports by comparing them to Jim Crow era laws that required freed black men to show their papers on demand uh, and also equated it with the birtherism crusade uh, propagated by Donald Trump and others. Uh, That uh, created a stir that didn't work well for Janie. So it has turned out that this audition that was supposed to really help her has been at best a mixed blessing. And knowing that Marty Walsh is not the former mayor, of course, is not delivering an endorsement in this case as he now works for Joe Biden in Washington. uh, How powerful would that have been and, and what kind of a vacuum did it leave? Well, you know what? You're right. He's not allowed to endorse. But just the other day on every local newscast here in Boston, There was video of Anissa Asaibi George, one of the five candidates, escorting her mother to the polls to cast an early vote. And along with them, longtime family friend, Marty Walsh's mother. And they did grow up almost next door to each other. (laughs) That's right. They grew up near each other. And Asaibi George, even before that publicity stunt, had made it clear she was running as the candidate for people that loved Marty Walsh. And you know what? According to the latest polls, he's still polling at close to 70 percent approval here in the city. So to whatever extent this election winds up being a referendum on the Walsh years, that's good news for Anissa Asaibi George. How big of a story is turnout going to be, John? I'm assuming, well, of course, it always is. But specific neighborhoods are going to determine the outcome of this election, right? That's right. Turnout is everything here, Joe. And the most reliable voting parts of the city, the the neighborhoods that historically uh, turn out in the largest numbers, are predominantly white working class and middle class neighborhoods, the southern reaches of Dorchester, a West Roxbury, South Boston and Charlestown, more blue collar neighborhoods. If it's a low turnout race citywide and the turnout that does occur is driven by these traditional hotbeds of voting, again, more good news for Anissa Asaibi George. However, you know, given the presence of Uh, impressive black candidates, including the acting mayor, uh, there's been an expectation that there would be a larger than normal turnout of voters of color. Uh, And uh, that would certainly help Kim Janey, uh, Andrea Campbell, another uh, African-American city councilor who's in a flat-footed tie with Janey in the polls. The problem for that scenario of Boston's first black mayor is that, guess what? The black vote in Boston is not monolithic. It's it's very diverse by age, class, genealogy. And that vote, according to all the polls, is splintering 
between Janie Campbell and John Barrows, another black candidate. Uh, Michelle Wu, the frontrunner, is getting her share of it, and Anissa Saiby-George is getting some. So, you know, Boston is not a cookie-cutter kind of place where you can make these sweeping assumptions based on race or ethnicity mm-hmm. and be assured that they're going to come true, Joe. A beautiful collection of neighborhoods we call the city of Boston, and he is the sage of politics in that town, John Keller at large with WBZ and CBS. It's great to have you with us on Bloomberg Radio, John. We'll talk when we get some results. Thank you, Joe. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The final bend on the fastest hour in politics with votes being cast today in Boston, where it's a nonpartisan preliminary, as they call it, sort of like game of survivor politics. Tonight, we start with five. Three will be off the island, leaving two finalists. And as we were just discussing with John Keller, the result will be historic. No matter who wins, the first time Boston will have a mayor, not determined tonight, but no matter what, down the road, will not be a white man. And we'll have special election night coverage on our Boston station. By the way, 106.1, that begins at 8 p.m. Listen in Boston on the radio or online if you're an expat like me. And We reassemble the panel now with Bloomberg's politics contributor, Democratic analyst Jeannie Shanzano, and Republican strategist Jennifer Nassour, founder of the Pocketbook Project and former Massachusetts GOP chair. So, Jennifer, I've got to start with you uh, this time. This is a city of Boston That does not look like the place a lot of us went to college in or maybe grew up in. As we consider the change in politics, this is actually an historic night, regardless of who wins the vote. It 1000 percent is a historic night. Uh, First of all, you know, one of the things and, and Jeannie and I can celebrate this together as women in this business. But there are four candidates that are women out of the five. I mean, just that alone, I don't care what your politics are, but that is remarkable in the city of Boston. Number two, Boston is now a majority minority city. And I do believe that it should be represented um, and that the mayor should be what the city is, represent the city. It just makes people feel more comfortable Jeannie, you've been listening, and of course, you've been pretty well engaged in this race in Boston. As we talked about with John, it's all about turnout, right? But no matter who turns out or who wins, this is going to be a remarkable story to tell uh, for, for local politics, certainly. But it speaks to what's going on nationally. It does. And, you know, I want to echo what Jennifer said ab- about the women um, that are in this race, these these four women. And to add to that, the fact that these are women who have worked their way. And, and you were just talking about this when you were talking to John Keller, who I could listen to all day, by the way, the <laughs> two of you. I love it. But, he, you know, he made he made the case that they're also members of the Boston City Council. And, you know, particularly at a time when we've just had a president who came from the business community, never having run for public office, it's really refreshing to see 
people and particularly women working their way up through the political system yeah. because that's how you learn. That's that's where you get your grounding. And so I think that's quite remarkable. I also think it's important to say that the city has been changing in this way for a long time. So while we are get, it's getting a lot of tension today and in this race, the changes have been coming for, for many, many years. And so Absolutely. all of these make it a race really worth watching. And, you know, as a New Yorker, I can't help but say I'm, I'm sort of jealous of the nonpartisan preliminary because we <laughs> we just went through the ranked choice and that was yeah. a, a bit of a mess. So <laughs> I uh, I do understand that Jennifer's back with us, I'm glad to say. And, you know, we heard as The New York Times noted over the weekend, they used to call themselves sisters in service. Jennifer, they were all on the city council together. Uh, Michelle Wu, who was expected to carry the night and then. The three uh, women who are con- in, in a real contest for second place, Anissa Saibi George, Andrea Campbell, uh, and the acting mayor, Kim Janey. How ugly will it get, or will it, once this turns into a real general election? Well, you know, that's that's awesome, because um, it. I think what's going to happen is, so Michelle Wu has been out there running mm-hmm. uh, for years. Uh, she was challenging Marty Walsh while that's he was right. still the mayor. And so I think what's going to happen is she's going to flatline. Um, her numbers aren't going to go up. I think uh, you're going to see whoever it is in second place gain the votes of the other three. Um, John Barrows, unfortunately, you know, he, he, he ran a good, a good race and stayed in there. But I think with, the, with all the women, he had no chance from the very beginning. Um, and so his numbers, I think his his people will end up going to the second place candidate because I think that everyone is a little bit, you know, look, politics is a sport, right? Michelle Wu got in first just because she was first doesn't mean that she should win. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the people who follow her, they'll all gravitate to number two. Plus Michelle Wu's politics are really far left. That isn't the politics of the city. And I do think that the other candidates have found their footing along the way and will be able to garner the support of, of the whoever drops out. Yeah, we, we should be uh, clear as well. Jennifer, you've been public about your support for Andrea Campbell. That's isn't that right? Correct. Yes. Just I, just for what it's she, worth. She's a, she's a good friend, an old friend. Um, and and but I, I have respect for everyone who's running. I do know them. I ran for Boston City Council, so I did spend time with each of them um, on different occasions. And I, I think, you know, whoever gets that number two spot has a real opportunity to be the next mayor. It's going to be something. It's going to be quite a night tonight. Join us again starting eight o'clock. Uh, if you're in Boston, one oh six one radio, you can also find it online. Uh, I want to ask you both uh, about a hearing that we talked about at the beginning of the broadcast. Uh, with Congressman Ami Berra of California, one of, I, I think it was 50 lawmakers asking questions uh, to Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State. And this thing took an interesting turn today as it moved to the Senate side. And the ranking member, uh, Senator James Risch, Republican from Idaho, decided to go after uh, Blinken on, on a, a completely, I guess we could say, off-topic topic here suggesting that there was a man behind the curtain at the White House in control of the president's microphone. This is only a portion of an extended exchange between the senator and the secretary of state. And I'll ask you both just what this was all about. Somebody in the White House has authority to press the button and stop the president, cut off the president's uh, uh, speaking ability and sound. Who is that person? (laughs) 
I think anyone who knows the president, uh, including members of this uh, committee, knows that uh, he speaks very clearly and very uh, deliberately uh, for himself. Uh, no one else does. Well, are you, are you saying that there is no one in the White House that can cut him off? Because yesterday that happened, and it's happened a number of times before that. It's been widely reported that somebody has the ability to push the button and, and cut off his sound and stop him from speaking. Who is that person? There is... There is no such person again. It went nowhere in what the Washington Post referred to as a made for cable news attack. And yesterday, Hunter Biden was invoked other scandals that had little to do with the conversation. And I wonder what you both think of this. Was there an actual strategy here on, on behalf of the senator or Republicans working on campaign commercials right now, Jennifer? Um, I do think it's a waste of taxpayer dollars uh, to to be going down that road when we should be talking about what's what's going on in Afghanistan. Um, I think, you know, it's probably trying to get to the, the around a conversation of who who really was guiding the president on what happened in Afghanistan and the sudden withdrawal of troops and the lives that were lost. And I think that that. He, he was trying to make his point. It was made in a very poor manner. I think that's what he was trying to do. Well, look, so let me note a couple of things. By the way, the New York Post wrote this up as legitimate news. The, the, the RNC was tweeting about it, I guess, is kind of how it got into the ether since everyone's not sitting around watching hearings all day. But as someone who's actually, you know, been on pool duty at the White House, I can tell you that when, when he's referring to this event that happened yesterday, the, the pool was taken out of the room. Like when, you, when they kick you out, you got to go. And it looked like the camera was being cut off or something like that. But that's a genie. The way the business works, they let the reporters in and they say, OK, thank you. And they push you out the door and the camera, you know, might look like uh, it wasn't the most elegant cutaway. You might be in the middle of a sentence or something like that. But this is getting print uh, and, and talk on social media like it's a real thing. It is. And we've been hearing about this for days. And, you know, I think what is so distressing is that the hearings into how we got into Afghanistan, what happened on our way out, what lessons can be learned. There is almost nothing more important uh, than doing that. That is Congress's role. Give us some oversight. Let us know what the lessons are. Let us know what to do next time this happens. All of that is lost by Senator Rich Rich describing and talking about if somebody is pressing a button to silence the president. And as anybody who knows the president knows, you can't silence Joe Biden. That's always been the problem with Joe Biden for many people is that he says everything he wants to say and he keeps going. So, you know, it was the height of ridiculousness to me. It does seem, and we saw it yesterday in the House as well, that domestic politics and you know, midterm election politics are creeping into what should be a sober discussion with the secretary of state about serious issues and this withdrawal, which even Democrats and many Democrats were very critical of the administration about today, yeah, including sure Menendez. Not. And that was all lost. There were actually more. Uh, there were more indicting words from Democrats. It's very true if you were if you were picking your your video there. But Jennifer, I'll give you the last word. I'm sorry we only have 30 seconds less. The fact of the matter is left, I should say, hidden earpiece conspiracy theories have been going on for years in politics. Sure, of course, because, you know, you, you see a president who gives a little thought. You see Joe Biden put his head in his hands. You see, right. you know, Donald Trump. He looks at the teleprompter. He comes off. I mean, it's, it's always something that goes on. 
again, I think we could all agree we would like less political theatrics and a little bit more information and policymaking. This is why they love Washington and why you love the fastest hour in politics. Many thanks to Jennifer Nasser and, of course, Jeannie Shanzano. This is Sound On. I'll meet you back here. Well, if you're in Boston, at least, 8 o'clock for special coverage. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.